be seated. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we just want you to know that you're welcome. It doesn't matter to us, you know, where you're coming from. Uh, you know, Sundridge is a place where there are people that they just come back week in and week out. Sundridge is their home, and sometimes I wonder how that happens. I'm so grateful for those that do and that we get to grow together. And uh, yet we're constantly seeing new faces and people that are exploring faith. And so we just want you to know that you're welcome here. You know, God's grace is bigger than any of us, whether we're great people this week or maybe you've made some big mistakes. God's grace is there for you. Uh, Before I get into my message today, um, you know, we're reminded in Hebrews 13 that we're to remember those in prison as though we're in prison with them. And for those that are suffering, we're to remember them as though we're suffering alongside them. And I think that that's the spirit and the heart behind the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I don't know if you know this or not, but 70% of the people around the world who follow Christ uh, do so in a hostile environment. And that 70% represents 215 million Christians that span 60 different countries. And when I say that they live in a persecuted state, I'm, I'm not talking about that sideways glance that you as a Christian might have gotten from someone at work or a snide comment from your neighbor because of your nativity scene at Christmas. They live in truly hostile and persecuted situations where being a Christian, just going to church, they might gather this morning and find that the cross to their church has been burned, or they may get detained, or arrested, abducted. They could be raped or imprisoned. They could be tortured, or even the ultimate, they could be martyred for their faith. And so, you know, I don't think that... uh, Christians that live in a suffering situation are, go unnoticed by God, and I'm so grateful for the people that help me to remember this day so that they won't go unnoticed by the church. So I, I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time uh, for the persecuted church, because this is the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. Pray with me. God, our earnest prayer for our brothers and sisters, people that are part of our family, with whom we will celebrate heaven forever. Our hearts go out to them today around the world that just naming your name can put their lives in danger. I pray that the situation that they're in, that they would find grace and that they would find the strength that comes from being in a community of faith, even if they're worshiping in secret, and I pray that somehow they, they know that there are believers far around the world, far distant from them, who are living vastly different lives, that carry their burden in our hearts and our souls, that we share in their sufferings, and our earnest prayers go out to them. I pray that in their lifetime that the church, government leaders, people with money and power and influence would bring justice to these situations. I pray that you would call each of us that are part of Sunridge to a higher awareness and a greater commitment 
to those, whether it's just even just to pray for them. I pray that today would be an especially worshipful and spirit-filled day for those that gather together around the world to worship you in a dangerous place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Uh, in first service, I asked, how many of you are involved in some way in ministering to or praying for the persecuted church? We had a few folks in the first service. Fantastic, fantastic. And then you should know that on Tuesdays, uh, there's a prayer meeting here for, uh, it's Tuesday, right? Tuesday? Yeah, um, for uh, the persecuted church. So just something for you to know. Thank you for joining me in that. <clears throat> um, so when I was growing up, my dad had all these dad sayings, and one of them was uh, out of whack. Anybody's dad ever say that, something's out of whack? It, it meant that uh, something was off, like a door could be out of whack, or something didn't work, so it was out of whack. And as a kid, I really didn't know how do you measure or evaluate whackness. And I didn't exactly know what that meant, but I knew what it meant if something was out of whack. Um, this past August uh, marked the 400th year. It was 400 years ago this past August that the first Africans were brought to America and sold for money or food to become slaves. You know, the world was out of whack then, and it's still out of whack. We've been in a series that we were calling Made Whole, and we've been talking about how God's intent with the gospel isn't just to save our souls and mark off our sins in heaven, but God desires to bring reconciliation and healing to all the relationships that have been broken. Through, the, through our sin. And so uh, at the very beginning, we were kind of at the 10,000-foot level. We talked about how the world was supposed to be and how sin has broken it. And, uh, <clears throat> and then last week, we started talking specifically down where the rubber meets the road. We talked about poverty and how God calls us through the gospel to bring reconciliation and healing to the world in, reg in regard to material poverty. And today, uh, I want to, again, stay in that micro level where the rubber meets the road. And I, I want to talk about racial tension and how the gospel speaks to that. And, of course, mainly I'm going to be addressing uh, black and white issues. But I just want you to, like, think with me across all hues, you know, black, brown, white, purple, whatever. Um, I'm even though I can't include that in every statement, we're talking about the tension between races. And you know, in spite of the fact that we had the Great War here um, a century and a half ago in this country, which brother fought against brother, uh, that uh, at least ostensibly resolved this, and out of that came the Emancipation Proclamation, we still have big, big problems. We, Racism isn't solved today, not in this country. And, you know, we continue to not just agree on whether, uh, disagree on whether it's a problem or not. We disagree on the solutions and the paths even to get to the solutions. In fact, even among Christians, there's great division uh, between black and white on whether it is even a problem. You know, the majority of white Christians in America don't believe that racism is a problem anymore. 
but you can flip that statistic if you talk to a person of color that is a Christian. And uh, so I realize that what I'm tackling today is far beyond me, and uh, I want to assure you that I want to do this sensitively, but I also want to do it directly. Um, you know, a pastor's job is, you know, like, you know what, do you, what do pastors do all day, all week, you know? I work three hours a week. It's, it's better than a fireman's schedule, right? <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, largely my job is on Sunday morning is, of course, to inspire you and to encourage you and to, to fill you with the hope of Jesus Christ so that when you leave here, whatever you're facing, that, like, you're just ready to go tackle it. And that you feel great that you came to church. But, you know, also my job is to push you a little bit. And I'm going to do that today. And I just want to assure you that the reason why I'm doing that is because I love you. And, or at least I like you a lot. And, uh, and, and I want the very best for us. And I, and I believe, I believe that the Bible has something to say on this. I want to tell you, we're not going to have the answer to racism today. But I think what the scripture is going to lay out for us is a way forward in this. And I hope to talk about this more in the future, so I don't intend for this to be exhaustive in any way. It's a big, big topic. So you won't find a silver bullet today, but I think you're going to have a pathway to get there. Because I believe that Christians today have a unique opportunity to contribute to healing the racial divide. Paul wrote to Timothy, there's only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and people. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And I just want to let you know straight up that I think it starts right there. That any reconciliation, any healing between God and man, or certainly between people to one another, begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've, been, we've noted often in 2 Corinthians 5 how Paul says that God reconciled the world to himself through Christ, that he broke down those barriers. But it didn't just end with us, that those of us who have been reconciled, we have also been given, Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation, which means as a follower of Christ, if you name the name of Jesus today, you are duty-bound to carry the gospel into your life in a way that is reconciling and healing to the world. But it's more than just a duty and it's more than just an opportunity. You know, I believe that as a Christian, you offer something unique that someone who is not a Christian cannot offer to the world because you have the gospel residing in you. Now, my thoughts today are going to like be centered in one letter, in particular, mainly one part of the letter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And if you know anything about your New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are all gospels, biographies of the life of Jesus. Then you have Acts, which is a history of the early church. And then you have a bunch of letters by different people. And in Paul's letters, they are written back to churches that he either planted or was a part of in some way. And he's giving them specific instruction or direction for their situation. And in the case of Colossae, Colossae is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, and it is much like America. It's a melting pot of religion. Uh, there's Jews there and Christians and pagans, but it's, because of that, it's a melting pot of race and culture. 
It's a multinational, multiracial community. And it's very different than, say, what you read about in Acts, the early church in Jerusalem, where it's basically monochromatic. The church at Jerusalem is largely made up uh, by people who were formerly Jewish, had all these common traditions, and then they become followers of the way of Jesus. And so they, they have all this commonness, but not so in Colossae. More like America. They're not monochromatic. They're multicolored. In fact, they're in vivid technicolor. And so when Paul writes a letter to a specific church, he's addressing some of those unique things that they face. And you see this multiracial, multinational, multireligious tension being addressed almost from the very beginning in Paul's letter in, Paul, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, I, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for those all who have not met me personally. Indi every indication is that Paul never went here. Instead, he worked through Epaphras and others. Verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, my heart, I am, well, how does he put it? I'm struggling for you. I am in this with you. I'm not talking down at you. I'm struggling alongside you. And he says, the thing I'm struggling for is that you would be encouraged and that you would be united. This is kind of the first indication that Paul knows that they have this tension that's due to their, their diversity. And he says the key here is for you to fully comprehend who Jesus Christ is. And then in chapter 3, he unpacks at least three ways that this relationship with God that we have as Christians affects how they can deal with these differences. And he starts with a general principle, and it's this. A Christian's worldview must be shaped by Jesus. That's number one. At the very beginning, the foundation, our worldview of all matters must be shaped by Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What Paul says here is, for the Christian, we have to be Christ-minded. And that's different than heavenly-minded. He talks about heaven here. But the reason our attention is focused in heaven is because of Christ. And there's a big difference between being heavenly-minded and being Christ-minded. To be heavenly-minded allows us to kind of have this idea that, well, one day I'll be in heaven and it's going to be beautiful, and so right now I'm just going to ride this out and try to avoid all the nonsense. You can't do that if you're Christ-minded. But also to be Christ-minded uh, imposes upon us a worldview that is shaped by Jesus, by who he is, which is different than allowing our worldview to be shaped by ideology. And all of us have this. I have it, you have it, the person next to you has it. We're, there, there are so many voices telling us how to think about things. And those tend, if they're, 
if we're driven by ideology, they tend to drive Christ out of the conversation. And that's part of our brokenness. If you're an ideologue, which is another way of saying someone who's driven by ideology, ideology forces you to, it allows you to illegitimize the alternative. In other words, so that there, there can't be any other view because I have my ideology and everything springs from that. The ideology of a Christian must be, who was Jesus? And that's true of your family life. It's true of your role as a husband or as a father or as a, as a child. Uh, your worldview on politics should be shaped by Christ. Uh, your worldview on the news and any big issues that we're facing should all be shaped by who Jesus was. I had a conversation this week with someone who's exploring Christianity. And I said to them, the best thing you could do right now with all your questions is read the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I said, and just look at who Jesus was. Just start there. Because that's the fundamental understanding you have to have as a Christian. Who was Jesus Christ? Paul said in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So, in other words, anything that I understand about God, God has given me a human example in the life of Christ to say, that's how God thinks. That's how God would respond. That's what God is passionate about. This is how God would wrestle with these issues. And someone who does that begins to be shaped by the life and teachings and values of Jesus. And when that happens, changes start to happen. And in verse 5, Paul starts to talk about that. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. Many still walk in those ways in the life you once lived. But now also, he, ta he takes a turn here. He says, here's all these physical sins that we often accompany uh, with a life without Jesus, right? But then he's going to get real personal. And he's going to talk about more sins of the Spirit that have to be dealt with in our changed life as we look at Christ. He says, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. Can you see this theme coming through? That God is constantly growing us in our understanding of who Jesus is and it changes our behavior. Now what's interesting here, besides this sin list, physical sins, spirit sins, is the context in which Paul is saying it. And this rolls right into verse 11. Here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. See, what Paul is getting at here, what he seems to be indicating, is that these conversations or these interactions that were filled with anger, rage, malice, slander, possibly even filthy language, possibly being less than authentic, with one another, have been tied to their diversity. And Paul acknowledges this difference in this community of faith. You see, Christianity isn't, oh, now that I'm a Christian, we're all the same. We're not the same. We're different. 
And God made us that way. But there is a difference in the way that we look at those differences. And it's obvious that when we have those differences, just as they did, we experience tension in those differences. You know, if you look at this, this list of how diverse they were, you can see how they're kind of, it's not an exhaustive list, I don't believe, but these are all expressions of our differences and how we divide. There's religious and racial differences in this church, in Colossae. Jew and Greek, that was far bigger than religion. It was also race. Uh, there's cultural differences, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. P different people have different traditions and different ways of doing family, different ways they live in their neighborhood and they act. There's a difference of lifestyle. There's barbarians and Scythians in this church. That's not two different kinds. That's two different degrees of the same thing. A barbarian, you know what that is, uncouth, like a Viking. But a Scythian took it to a whole other level. They used former captors' skulls as bowls for their eating utensils. These people were totally vicious, and they've become Christians. And then he points out the socio and economic differences. There are people that are still slaves, and there are people that are free and are wealthy, and they're all cast together into this church. If we look, if we allow Jesus to shape how we view the world, then what happens is Christianity is able to acknowledge our differences, yet it shows us how to break through the resulting barriers that come from those differences. Because all of our categories, all of our experiences and our differences, they, are, they set our limitations. We all have them. I have them. When it comes to race, I, um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, which is different than many of you. But I, I grew up in an area, a larger area called, it was, uh, it's called Miami Gardens. Specifically, I grew up in an area of that called Carroll City. And uh, at the time, was a very racially diverse community. And it became less and less diverse as I went to elementary school and junior high school because of what is commonly called white flight. As people of color moved into the community, people, white people moved out of the community. And they moved north and founded other areas. And for whatever reason, my parents never moved. And so I grew up uh, with having all kinds of friends. And so that gave me like an experience that I know that not everybody's had. But here's the thing. I'm still white. And I can't change that. I've always been white. I'm, I'm college educated. I come from an intact family. And I've never been anything other than white. I haven't been brown, haven't been black, haven't been Asian or Middle Eastern. I've only been white. That's my filter when it comes to race. And our filters bend the way we see things. Uh, early in my career in the fire department, we used to have to regularly do a, uh, a course on affirmative action. And I remember being in a class, countywide people, not just fire department, and um, was on affirmative action, and a white male stood up 
and kind of railed, you know, had some negative comments about even having to take the course. And he says, you know, it's getting aware in this county, a white, a white man can't even get a job. Yet he was in a room which was, that was filled with white males. And the irony struck me in that moment. See, we have filters that we cannot always get over. Which of these statements is more true to you? Jackie Robinson was the first black man to play Major League bas Baseball, or Jackie Robinson was the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball? One is more true than the other. But our experience causes us to respond to that differently. You know, Jackie Robinson played his first year in Major League Baseball in 1947. That's 100 years after the Civil War. And it wasn't until 1954 that in America we had desegregation. And even after that, in 1955, Rosa Parks uh, is arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a bus to a white person. And it's not until 1964 that the Civil Rights Act passed, which says it outlawed discrimination. And in 1965, those of us who were around watched in horror as police and troopers beat peaceful protesters who were marking, marching from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, for fair voting rights. And it wasn't until that year that the, fair, uh, that the Voting Rights Act passed. You see, it's not so long ago. And yet all throughout history we've had Christian people and we just have been looking at things through our own filters. You guys okay? Maybe can, can go ahead, give me a little more than that or I'm just going to fold up and go home. Here's what Paul says to this. He said, here there is none of that. In this community of faith, at Colossae, he says to them, I know you have all these differences. You can't change that. But you have to change the way that you respond to that. Because here, those differences don't matter. But you know what? You know, they, still, they say that the Sunday morning hour is still the most segregated hour in America, in churches. Again, the majority of white Christians in America don't believe that there's a problem. The majority of black Christians in America think there is a problem. You know, if we're going to change this, we have to acknowledge that we have our differences. And you've got to break out of your bubble and rip out of your filter. And when you do that, you'll be able to see this next point, that Christianity provides a new filter to view others through. We have a new way of seeing the world and others. In verse 12, Paul says, therefore is God's chosen people, chosen, holy, and dearly loved. I have favorite passages. Colossians, is, Colossians 3 is one of my favorite passages, and this might be my fave of the faith. Because here Paul breaks down in such simple ways how God feels about people. They're chosen. If you're a Christian, you've been chosen by God. 
you are holy, which is, it's not like, you know, you're extra righteous in that sense. Holy means to be set apart. You're so special that God says, I, I just want you to be here. And you're dearly loved. Not just loved, dearly loved, the NIV says. I don't know what's been said to you, what, what, what you're feeling today, but can you just let those words sink in if you're a Christian today, that you are chosen by God, that you're so special that he sets you apart, and you're dearly loved. And he feels that way about every person. He wants that for everyone. Contrast that with more of a worldly view of looking at people. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, from now on, that is, Christians, we've changed the way we look at people. We no, on regard, we no, we no longer regard people from a worldly point of view. See, there's a godly way of looking at people, and there's a worldly way. And the worldly way basically has two categories. There's narrow-mindedness and no-mindedness. See, narrow-minded, narrow the narrow-minded view says, I'm, a, I'm the only one that's right on this, and I don't need to talk to anybody else about it. I got it down. And then there's the other perspective. It's like no-mindedness, no like no one's right. And by the way, no-mindedness eventually morphs into narrow-mindedness because it disallows anyone to have an opinion on something. See, Christianity demands that we see people through the filter of God's love for them. Not, not our experience, not our ideology, but being shaped by Christ, seeing them as holy and chosen and dearly loved. And when we do that, now we have a place to talk. Christianity provides a code of conduct for relating to one another. A code of conduct. Paul goes on in verse 12, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Think about your last conversation of, about something that you're super passionate about. Was it, could it be described as that? Compassionate, kind, humility, humble, gentle, patient. Um, you may not be aware, but for a, in a pretty extended period of time, we had a group of women that were meeting here once a week in the evening to discuss race. And of course, it was a racially diverse uh, community. And you know what they found? They found it's really hard to talk about this. And it really does require this code in order for it to be healthy. You know what it requires? You know what Paul is saying here? We need empathy. Just as I talked about in Hebrews, when I talked about the persecuted church, how uh, we're to remember those who are in prison as if we're in prison with them. There's an empathy here that comes through, an understanding. An empathy is the ability to live inside someone else's skin. When we do that, we can see that their experience is going to be different than ours. Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he talks about how this happens. He says, you know, the only way to get there is to start with acknowledgement. We have to acknowledge 
um, what has been done in the name of race? Not necessarily by you or by me, but what has been done? And when we acknowledge that, it should create lament in our hearts to know that people who are loved by God in this way have been hurt that way. And I, I know that, like, it's easy to say, well, just get over it. You know, it's America, you know, you got it. It's like, just get over it. Think about the last thing that really hurts you and your family. Think about your divorce. Think about that child that's estranged from you and the last words that were shared. Do you want your friend to say, just get over it? There's a lament that goes in the, when we acknowledge brokenness in relationship. And once we are, when we can lament, then we can repent. And it's only after acknowledging and lamenting and repenting that we're really ready to talk about reconciling with one another. And by the way, when we do that, that's going to break down no matter what our code of conduct is. And then Christianity provides a way of coping with our differences. We're go it's going to get tense. And we're not always going to be empathetic. And neither are people toward us. And so Paul says in verse 13 that that's when you should bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you, you may have against one another. And forgive as the Lord forgave you. As long as we're living in a world that's broken, we're going to have what are called irreconcilable differences. We're going to come to this point of we can't find resolution. And it's going to frustrate us. Sometimes it's going to make us mad. Sometimes we're going to have ill feelings, even hatred toward those who are different than us or hold a different opinion. And at that, it's the, at that point that we bear with it, if that's not enough, we forgive them. And if we can't get to that level of forgiveness, we're reminded that we're to forgive as Christ forgave. In the course of my career, I was, I, I've been in many homes of what are known as is someone who's a hoarder. You know, have you seen, there's a show on this, a hoarder doesn't throw anything out. They, it just keeps accumulating. It can be, it's garbage. It's old wrappers to food. It's old food. It's newspapers and mail and, and dead pets. And I've literally been in houses where you had to walk in a narrow pathway, maybe 18 inches, and the stuff was piled head high, sometimes to the ceiling. And it only led to little paths, little openings where there might be part of a couch open or a stool in a kitchen. And people lived in this, this environment surrounded by all this stuff that they refused to let go of. You know, to live a life with, without forgiving is allowing that stuff to build up in your life so that you are so restrained that you, you can't even live the way that you were meant to live. There's no room for you to move. If you're a Christian and and you feel heat on this. I have too. And if you're passionate about things, God made us with passion. But we have to remember that God calls us to forgive the harsh things that are said, the unthinking things, the, the wildly psychotic idea 
Don't you feel like that sometimes when you talk about these matters of passion? You feel like, how can you even hold that position? Sometimes it just comes down to forgiving. And lastly, Christianity establishes love as the highest value of whole relationships. Love is the highest thing. Verse 14, over all these virtues, everything else Paul talked about, he says, put on love. Wrap, the final wrapper is love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is supreme, over and above all. You know, I have a friend, I know that might be surprising to you, but he, um, he's an amazing slow barbecue smoker. And he, he, his name's Gary. He's in the audience today. This guy's the master. He does pulled pork and ribs and brisket. And uh, I'll give you his address and the next time he's barbecuing. But one of my favorite things he makes are these bacon-wrapped smoked jalapenos. So he takes a jalapeno and he cuts it in two. And he scrapes it all out and he fills that jalapeno with cream cheese which is a dairy product, which, so you know it's good for you. And then he puts cheese on top of that, cheddar cheese, nothing, heavy on the cheese. And then he takes that thing and he wraps it with bacon carefully, a whole piece of bacon, and then he puts a toothpick in it. And then he takes those things and he puts them in a smoker and he lets those lets them smoke for about four hours. And over that four hours, the goodness, all the health and nutrition of that bacon <laughs> soaks down through that jalapeno. Now, you and I, we're a lot like a jalapeno, a smoked jalapeno, because each of us some have the creamy, cheesy goodness to us, right? Some of you got more of it than others. And then... Um, we all have some spiciness of the jalapeno, right? Some of us got a little more spice than others. And I think what God wants the believer to do is to take all your creamy smoothness and all your spiciness, all your strong opinions and your assertiveness and all the answers that you think you know, and I think he wants you to wrap that up in his love and he wants to let that simmer over your lifetime so that his love kind of goes down through and it softens you and it makes your spiciness and your creaminess so much better. That's what it means to wrap all these things in love. Now, I know that you care a lot about race issues, whether you're white or black or purple or whatever color. But if you're a Christian, your life view on these things has to be shaped by who Jesus was. And when you, in doing so, you have to realize you have a lot of differences. You, and those differences give you filters. And your job is to break through those with the gospel. To get out of your bubble. And to rip off your filters. And to begin to see people through the lens of God's love. And when you do that, you're going to have empathy. 
And that empathy is going to cause you to listen. And it's going to cause you to be able to dialogue about things uh, with compassion and kindness and humility. And then because you're human, you're going to blow it. And they're going to blow it on you. And then you're going to bear with, you're going to put up with them. You're going to forgive them. And you may even have to forgive at the Jesus level. And over all that, you're just going to wrap it up with God's love. You're going to wrap all of you up with God's love. That is the way forward in this issue. And many others, by the way. It's not the answer, but it's the path to the answer. In 1963, you know that Martin Luther King gave a speech at the Lincoln Memorial. It's called the I Have a Dream speech. And there's one line in it I want to bring out as I close. He said, out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And the reason why I bring that up is these matters seem so insurmountable. They seem so overwhelming to us. It is a mountain of despair. But Dr. King reminded his listeners that day that there is a stone of hope. That hope is God's work in our heart called the gospel, the good news. And all you have to do, Christian, is take that stone of hope and allow God to work on your heart. In fact, throw that next verse up for me. Paul said, I pray also that the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So that Paul says there that you don't just automatically get this, but if you just take that stone of hope and you allow God to enlighten you and work on you and, and loosen you up and nudge you out of your bubble, I think... Christian community, more than any other circle in this world today, has a great opportunity to speak to the biggest issues of our day. But if we do it out of ideology and without, or we do it without standing on our understanding of who Jesus is and allowing the gospel to do its work in us, we're just going to add to the noise. My prayer for us today is that we would take that stone of hope and overtake the mountain of despair. Let's pray together.